Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever is not against me is for me. What's interesting, though, is that Jesus in another passage says, Whoever is not for me is against me. So, which is it? Is this a contradiction? No. See, for Jesus, they're both right because of one reason, because of context. Now, he was speaking to two different audiences, and well, each audience needed to hear something different that Jesus had to say to them. In Luke 9, where Jesus says, whoever is not against me is for me, he's speaking to the disciples. And his disciples, here's their issue, they're complaining that there are other people out there casting out demons in Jesus' names. Now this comes right after the section where the disciples are arguing who among them is the greatest. See, the problem was that they were jealous that there were others out there ministering in Jesus' name and they did not get the credit or glory. So it actually makes sense that Jesus would tell them, hey, whoever is not against me is for me. But in Matthew 12, in another section, Jesus says, whoever is not against me is for me. Now, in this case, he's speaking to the Pharisees. Their issue was that they saw how powerful Jesus was with his miracles, but they did not really believe that he was the Messiah. So Jesus tells them that they need to believe in him 100% because he will later sit on the throne of judgment. In other words, for Jesus, there is no middle ground for believing in him. Either you're for him or you're against him. You're either in or you're out. All in, all out. So now these words make sense. Whoever is not for me is against me. So there you go. A little bit about this phrase. And that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. God, we thank you for yet another beautiful day here in Phoenix. We thank you for just the fun that we've had with the NCAA tournament. Uh, we, we thank you, Lord, for being here with us tonight. And we just pray, Lord, as you're here with us tonight, that you would give us wisdom, that you would send your spirit and power upon us so that we might not only gain some things from this text tonight, but that it might be something that we can lay confidence in, that we might find hope in, that we might be reminded that you've got us as we're going through this hard life, that we might gain some encouragement as we go, Lord. But we pray that you'd be with us tonight and that you'd give us wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and that you most of all remind us of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said... Amen. So we're going to be talking about the transfiguration tonight, and that's found in Luke 9, verse 28. But I'm actually going to go back a few verses just to give it a little context tonight. This morning I talked a lot, if you guys were here, a lot about the good stuff that God gives us, right? The forgiveness that he gives us in Jesus Christ and how powerful that is because so often we go through life just beating ourselves up or trying to measure up, but God says, I give you grace. In other words, it's undeserved love and forgiveness for you. And if you were here, I talked about the way that a parent looks at their child. And when you just first meet your child, they haven't done anything to deserve your love. They haven't earned your love in any way. But isn't it weird as a parent how much you love that kid? And you love them completely. And there's almost nothing you wouldn't do for them. And you're holding them for the first time. I was blown away by that experience, honestly. And as your kids grow up, you have to discipline them, right? And we talked about that. But you still love them in the midst of the discipline. They get to be in high school and they start charting their own courses and sometimes they're dumb courses and you just still love them because they're your kids. It's an undeserved love and forgiveness and you're constantly loving them except that God does that in greater and more powerful ways. But it's the good stuff that we should be focused on. The strength that he gives us to deal with life, the power that he gives us to overcome and to reconcile, the hope that he gives us that nothing is impossible for him, that he has our home in heaven 
the peace that he gives when we actually trust him with some of the stuff that he's promised us in this life. That's why we come, because we need that strength and that hope and that forgiveness and that reminder that he's with us all the time. That's the good stuff. And here's the way it's supposed to go, that as we begin to trust that those things are real for us, we are overwhelmed with love to the point where we say we want to follow. Because if you go through the Gospels, that's what Jesus says. He says, if you believe me, come follow me. And he does that for a lot of different reasons. One of the reasons, obviously, is to protect us because Satan's working awful hard to make sure we don't end up with him, right? And as we walk through life, we see the complications that Satan brings into our families, into our workplace, sometimes even to the church, into our thought life. And over and over and over, he kind of attacks in different places. And so he says, follow me and you'll be protected. In fact, as you go through the whole of Scripture, you'll see that 99.9% of the times when you follow him, you experience blessing. It's the negative consequences to sin that kind of complicate our life and frustrate our life and make things harder and more difficult. That 0.1% obviously is when people sin against us and they complicate our lives that way. But most of the time, it's a protection. It's a hedge. By the way, that's another thing that God does is he protects us. I know we focus on the bad stuff, but you'd be amazed by how much he protects us as we walk through this life. But overwhelmed by what he does, he would say, follow me. And we'd be like, absolutely. It's the safest way forward. But he also says, you should be overwhelmed with love for me that you follow me. And that gets us into the text a little bit tonight. Because it's not just a self-serving following, which protects us, right? It's we follow him anywhere he wants us to go. To do anything he wants us to do. You think about Moses, right? He was out in the middle of the desert and God comes to him and he says, hey, come follow me. I need you to lead the people of Israel, right, out of Egypt. By the way, I need you to talk to Pharaoh for me. And he's like, are you kidding me? Go talk to somebody else. I don't want to do this. I'm not even a good speaker, anything but me, you know. But God kept talking to him and out of love and a little fear, right, he obeyed God 100%. All the way through scriptures, you see people that because God called them to do things, asked them to do things, they just responded in obedience. Not just because they knew it was the safest way, but because they loved him. Because they would do anything for him because of what he had done for them. Jesus is going to model this for us. In this part of the text, he kind of goes uh, over and over. This, this piece that I just gave you as perspective today. And in verse 21, it, Remember, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. He said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. See, Jesus knew what the Father wanted him to do. He knew it was the only way to save you and me. And he started trying to tell his disciples, Hey guys, I need you to get this. It's not going to go the way you think. You know, and I know you're going to fight about position and power and all this stuff a little bit, but it's going to go a different way, and I need you to understand that in advance. But I'm doing this, not because I'm excited about going through it, but I'm doing this because I love my Father, because I see his purposes for me, for you guys, because I know this is the only way, and in obedience, he was obedient his, to his Father all the way to the cross. And then he tries to share this with them too, trying to expand their perspective a little bit of following him. And he said this to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross daily and follow me. You see, we want to focus. And when we share our faith, we want to focus on the good stuff. That's the stuff we need. That's why we love Jesus. And by the way, following him doesn't get us to heaven. 
It's an outflow. It's an afterflow of our love for him in response to what he's done for us. That's what sanctification is. It's being so jazzed by what he's done that we actually want to follow. And he says sometimes following is going to be hard. Sometimes you're not going to like it. Sometimes it even means death. He used the, the depiction of the cross, right, which was a, a way that you crucify people, executed people in the day. He says, sometimes it's that hard. And so I want you to look at your life and sometimes pick up that cross and follow me, which means there's going to be some sins in your life that I want you to root out because they're destroying you even though you don't want to quit them. And there's going to be some people I want you to share with and it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be hard, but I need them in the kingdom and I need to use you. And sometimes I just need you to reconcile with your spouse. I know she did you wrong, but I need you to keep in there and hang in there because it's going to be for your kids and it's going to be a blessing for you if you can just hold on long enough. Sometimes following God is super hard and so he says, pick up the cross and follow me. It's a perspective you don't give at the beginning, right? But it's something that you naturally want to do afterwards. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And so this obedience thing, this sanctification thing, is something that we do because we love the Lord, because he knows he has purpose for us in this life. Because we know that he'll equip us and he'll strengthen us every step of the way for our good and for others. So now he's going to go to a section beginning with the transfiguration, trying to build up faith. And you're going to see how, how tenuous this faith thing, this trust in God is as they go forward. How tenuous their understanding of what Jesus is actually coming to do. In verse 28, we pick up with the transfiguration. It says, now about eight days after he's saying these things, okay, so he had just said these, just warned them of what he's going to do, just told them how hard it might be in the future. He took Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah were two of great... God's great prophets, right? Moses, prophet, priest, and king, all, all in the same thing. Obedient to him even when it was hard. Remember Elijah? He had that great moment on Mount Carmel, not because it was made out of Carmel, right? That would be another mountaintop experience, right? But he had this incredible thing. It was a competition between him and the, the priests of Baal. And he said, whoever, whichever God answers with fire wins, right? That's the true God. And so they had this day-long competition and the priests of Baal were cutting themselves and chanting and doing everything, trying to get their God to answer with fire, but nothing happened. Elijah woke up from his nap or whatever he was doing and he walks over at the time of evening sacrifice, kind of takes the hose, you know, waters it all. He didn't have a hose, but buckets, you know, waters it all down, right? And all of a sudden, God answers with fire from heaven in front of everybody and everybody turns to God. Everybody says, God alone is king. He is alone as God. We will worship him. Everybody's blown away by even the king, right? King goes back and talks to his wife and things get a little muddled. But at that moment, he believes in God above everything. It was an incredible experience. And then the queen finds out and threatens Elijah's life. So he goes off to the mountain. He says, I'm the only one. Think about that. I'm the only one in Arizona that believes in Jesus. And he says, no, 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 Elijah, there's 7,000 that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. Elijah went to the king 
Moses went to the Pharaoh in obedience to God to accomplish his purposes. They're incredible men of faith and trust in their God. And God sends these two to talk to Jesus. And to do what? Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Jesus already had an inkling. We don't know how great that inkling was, but he certainly knew he'd be betrayed. And you just kind of imagine these guys coming as ministering spirits, saying, you can do it, this is the way. You know, we're rooting for you, whatever the deal was. But God sent these two guys to talk with them, to spend time with them. Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer. And it's an interesting concept, right? Because we always think of Jesus as 100% God, but he was also 100% man. We see that again in the garden. And he needed that buffeting up. He needed that encouragement. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he was saying. He was just excited. He just wanted to do something, right? And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed him. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. With these three disciples, he showed in uncertain, I mean, in absolute terms, this is my son, follow him. And then in Matthew says, don't tell anybody, but who are they going to tell? Who would believe exactly what just happened? They just saw Moses and Elijah, and then they heard God's voice. And they come down to this, to this, come down from the mountain, and they're just still trying to assimilate everything they just saw and witnessed. Peter had already confessed that he was the Christ, right? Already just about a week prior confessed that he was the Christ. Now there was zero doubt, as if he had any doubt before. They were filled with the realization, filled with the knowledge that this was the Messiah and no, with no doubt remaining. And they come down the mountain and they're faced in the next few verses and chapters, faced with four examples of unbelief. Four examples of times where people struggled in their faith, grasping hold of what had been told to them, shown to them in no uncertain terms. Got a question here. When Jesus says there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God, what is he meaning? Obviously, those men did die before Jesus came again, so what was he meaning? I kind of talked about this last week. Um, Most commentators just kind of uh, view it as this that those that are standing there would see the resurrection, see the kingdom of God initiated, see all that had been promised from the beginning, way back in Adam and Eve with the serpent, that fulfillment had come, that the kingdom of God was now at hand. And so that's what they believe is kind of a murky thing. A lot of commentators aren't sure, but that's kind of the general consensus of what that means. Hope that was helpful. He goes on to this next section. On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him alone. You know, if you've ever been a parent, had a kid that has something wrong, it's terrifying, isn't it? You feel so helpless. You're so afraid of what might be. You're praying constantly for God to intervene, for God to protect them, for God to save them. And that's where this guy was. 
And so he had heard about Jesus. Maybe he had faith in Jesus. Maybe he just wanted to see if Jesus could do anything, but he brought his son to his disciples. You get the sense that it wasn't Peter, James, and John, but the other nine, right? And he says, I beg your disciples to cast it out. Imagine you begging a physician or somebody to to get rid of whatever is ailing them. And Jesus answered, and, and it says, but they could not. These guys had just been on a journey, right? Jesus sent them out. They were casting out demons all over the place. He said, demon be gone, and they were gone. They were healing people. It was freaking them out. They were excited about the, the opportunity that God gave them. They were excited about people coming to faith. They were blown away by the power God had given them. But now, Jesus and the other guys are gone, and they're, they're unable to. There's a lot of conjecture about why this was, but it seems that at the very minimum, they had lost faith, or at least trust that God would still come through. I think that happens sometimes when you experience that, you start to assimilate that it's your power somehow, that you're doing this, that you've got a gift, that it's not God doing it anymore. Sometimes that can mess up what God wants to do. Sometimes, and as you look at this, I mean, it was convulsing the kid. I mean, there's a definite demon possession. The father recognized it, other people recognized it. There's a huge crowd here knowing that something was wrong with this kid. And it was beyond just the epilepsy that he obviously struggled with. There was, there was a demonic presence. Were they fearful of what they experienced? Did that cause them to doubt what was happening? We don't exactly know, but we know Jesus' response. And it wasn't just to the disciples, it was to the people that were there that didn't believe. He says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation. It's interesting, my mom did psychology for a lot of years and she would talk about demon possession and different examples and there were some commonalities, you know, in their past that that allowed these guys to to get in those places. And it was twisted, right? It was not the way it was supposed to be. Kids should never be subject to some of the things that happened to them. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you Why won't you believe me, he says. Why won't you just trust me? If you had faith as small as a mustard seed, this wouldn't be an issue. Why do you fail to believe? Why won't you let me help you? He can just hear him pleading with these guys. While Jesus was walking up, the demon threw himself to the ground and convulsed him. And look how easy it was for Jesus. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And everybody was floored, astonished at the majesty of God. God who spoke the world into being speaks to the Spirit, tells it to go. And he's just frustrated that his disciples just fail to trust him. But don't we do the same stuff? Think about the last time you asked for forgiveness of God more than once. Why did you do it the second time? Didn't you trust that he forgave you the first time? Don't you know that that's what his death was about, his resurrection was about, that he died not for nothing but for you? Why did you ask the second time instead of just trusting and receiving the peace immediately? That guilt should last for like seven seconds, the amount of time it takes for you to realize you've done something wrong and to apologize and then to let God say, I forgive you, I love you, you're mine. And that peace should overwhelm you. Why do we spend the next hours or days or years or whatever beating ourselves up for something that God died for? I talk about this box that we trust Jesus for. And that's in the box usually, that forgiveness thing. And we still struggle with that. We doubt that he's there sometimes as we're going through hard times. 
We doubt that he's able to overcome certain obstacles in our life, certain difficulties in our life. We, we fail to trust that he's still working things for our good. We fail to trust that he still cares about our life. We fail to trust over and over and over. And he would speak to us, oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? There's literally no reason for us to doubt. And so Jesus walks in and he re-reminds everybody of his power, of his good stuff, of the good stuff that he gives to us. He heals the boy, one of the gifts that he gives, right? And we're all blown away again, going, oh, that's right. That's why we worship him. He forgives. He's awesome. He's powerful. He, he heals. He restores. He is amazing. Jesus again foretells his death. So right after this, he's just coming down the mountain, right? Remember what the other three just saw? He, he, he's confronted with the situation, deals with it very quickly. And then he says, but while they were still marveling at everything that, that he was doing, Jesus said this to the disciples, let these words sink into your ears. You say that very often? No, you only say it when you just absolutely want somebody to get something. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. What did he just talk to Moses and Elijah about? What he had just warned about them a little week earlier about? Guys, it's not what you think. This is going to be hard. This is a battle. I'm about to do something that will save all of you for all of history. But it's not about power in this world. And it's not about saving in this world. It's about saving for eternity. But they did not understand his saying. It, a couple weeks ago, I talked about that it's God's glory to reveal things and God's glory to conceal things. I don't know if this was God concealing it from them until the proper time, if it was Satan trying to boggle their mind, trying to take their attention away, but they didn't get it. They must have looked back at some of these sayings prior to the resurrection, right? And afterwards, looking back and saying, why didn't we understand what he was taking? He was as clear as day. Everything he said transpired. They didn't get it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Kind of marvel at that too. They spent like every day with this guy, or at least both days. Maybe they went home for some family trips here and there, right? But they spent a lot of time with Jesus, asked him a lot of questions why were they afraid to ask him about this? I know sometimes people say, well, uh, pastor, they're just afraid to ask you. Well, why are they afraid to ask me? I'm pretty, I mean, maybe not right now, but I'm pretty approachable. I, you know, come and ask me. I'd love to talk to you guys. I, I, I love you guys. But, but they were afraid to ask him it. Clarify for us what you mean. An argument, and just to show that they were missing things, an argument arose between them as to which was the greatest so Jesus must have done a pretty good job saying, I love you all the same, right? And you think your kids, they're arguing about which one's the greatest. They don't already know. So there wasn't a clear favorite, right? But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him in, by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So Jesus is trying again to reframe their perspective on what's going to go down. You know, humility, I, I, somebody once said that humility is not thinking less about yourself, or is not, yeah, not thinking less about who you are, right? Not minimizing who you are, your abilities or anything like that. It's just not thinking about yourself at all. It's thinking about others. It's caring about other people's needs before yours. 
It's not saying that you're not awesome. You guys are awesome. But it's just saying, I'm going to focus on other people. And I want to share with them about, other, about Jesus. And I want to connect them with his love. It's not about me. It's about them. One of the hardest things when you come on staff here is I tell you, like the first day, I say, okay, it can't be about you in this job, right? You're not allowed to get offended. You can come share that with me. But the reality is it's about the people, it's about the members of this church. It's stuffing your own issues so that they can see Jesus. It's doing things that connect them to his love. It's helping them in every possible way as they journey through this life. It's not about you. And every once in a while, that gets a little hard, right? Because people are people. And we're a hospital of sinners, not a house of saints. Look, that's God's encouragement to us. He says, that's what makes you great. It's not about you. It's about everybody. I've made everything about you, God says. Jesus died and rose and made everything about you. He would have come down to this earth, died just for you. That's how much he loves you. God makes everything about you so that you can make everything about other people. We don't live in that kind of society, right? It's a me-first society, which kind of upends that whole idea. But that's what God still calls us to. And when we forget that, our witness goes to pot in this world, doesn't it? And instead of sharing with people the good stuff, we start debating, we start arguing, we start getting defensive. We start showing them the worst side, not the best side. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does, he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, don't stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, and I want to talk about political things, and I, and I don't care what side of the aisle that you happen to sit on, but I just want to use this as an example. Of the three most powerful countries in the world, which country, China, Russia, and America, which country right now is the leader not actively encouraging the destruction of Christians, or at least persecution amongst Christians? It's just the United States right now. Actually, President Xi in China is actively working on a de-religification of the entire nation, a Sinoification or whatever, you know, making everything Chinese. He's putting Muslims in internment camps, or he's, he's taking down crosses, he's persecuting Christians, he's making sure that if you don't do the right things, that you can be cast out of your job. They've even done an incentive program in one of the provinces where if you hear about churches meeting, if you hear about people, you know, taking the religion too seriously, we'll give you some money if you report them so that we can deal with it in the proper way. In Russia, they're not as active as that, but they're certainly not encouraging things. They're certainly trying to put rules in place that make it harder for Christians to worship there. And so whether you like Trump or don't like Trump, if you're not against us, you're for us. And he's done some things for Christians in this country that like him or don't like him, you should like what he's done for the Christians in this country in terms of protections, in terms of some of the justices and all those different things. Like him or don't like him, those are just facts. He's not saying, as Mike kind of correctly talked about, he's not saying, if it was just you, if you're not with me, you're against me. Right? If you're putting other things before me, if you're going to serve other gods before me, if you're going to put other things as more important to me, if you're not with me, you're against me. He's talking to you personally. But in this case, if there's allies for the cause, rejoice in that. We live in an increasingly non-Christian world today. 
If there's people that aren't hunting us down, rejoice in that. And I think we think that's funny in America, but in the rest of the world, that's actually what's happening. It's a scary world in Central, or, um, in the Middle East it's a, for Christians. It's a scary world in China right now for Christians, in parts of Africa for Christians. There's a lot of places in this world where it's not a positive thing. We deal with some intellectual persecution here. They deal with life and death. As they were going, let's see, where am I here? Luke 9.50, I love that screen. Okay, um, in verse 51 it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Okay, that's why the transfiguration happened. It's time now to set his face, start making his way toward Jerusalem. He's gonna take a long while. We're only in chapter nine, right? But, but he's, gonna, he's starting his way. There's a lot of things he wants to teach on the way. But he's setting his face toward Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a a village of the Samaritans. And I want you just to understand, so when Jesus would go, he would send out an advance team, right, to secure lodging and do a lot of the different things. That's why when he's walking to Jerusalem in the the Passion narrative, right, there's a person that already had his donkey ready and all that kind of stuff. He sends out the advance team. He was well organized. It's, It's an amazing part of Jesus. Anyway, they entered this village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. In fact, this was an area where uh, the Samaritans were, were kind of stinkers, and more than stinkers when it came to the, to the Jews in the place. A lot of Jews would kind of cross through this particular area to go to Jerusalem to do worship and different things, and they would mess with them, and they would rob them, and sometimes they would kill them. Because, you know, the Jews and the Samaritans weren't buddies. The Jews hated them. The Samaritans hated them right back. This was a particular area where they were just not kind. And Jesus was walking through them. His disciples were trying to set up uh, preparations and they wouldn't let them. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Remember Elijah? There goes 50 more of your units, right? Do you want us to do that now? Because we don't like what they're doing. They are, you know, they're dishonoring you, Jesus. And we want to, and Jesus says, no. He turned and rebuked them. Again, I'll bring you back to when we share our faith. Do you think arguing somebody into the kingdom works very often? Right? Debating them into the kingdom? It doesn't usually work very well. I think it's, it's fun for us, but it doesn't really work. Smiting them with fire, is that going to bring them to the love of Jesus? No. God can take care of his own name, right? But he calls us since Jesus to love our enemies, to pick up our cross, to love other people more than ourselves, our own rights. These disciples, man, they were consumed about who was the greatest. They were indignant because these people were treating them poorly. They had no idea what Jesus was just going to go through in a few days. Jesus was like, no, that doesn't show them who I am. It doesn't show them why I came. You've got to start loving them instead of just being mad at them. I think that's instructive for us. I think sometimes we just get that confused as we talk to people about who he is. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And so there's a bunch of guys that are just moved by Jesus, excited about what he's talking about. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
It's one thing for me to say, man, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. I'm going to go serve as a pastor. And I love that. And they're going to send me someplace, you know, probably Nebraska, whatever. But I'm going to go in, right? I was so thankful when they sent me to Texas. In fact, the, the, the dean of admissions, he says, is there anywhere where you don't want to go north of the Mason-Dixon line? I said, please send me south, right? Because I'd been in Arizona for a while. I just like it better. And when he sent me to Texas, I was so excited because 18 of the guys in my class went to Nebraska. My one buddy got a, a picture of the town that he was in and they were just showing him a little bit and it had, so, so he had the screen showing the town and he's like, oh, that's pretty cool. I can see the end of town. And then the picture panned this way and he goes, oh man, I can see the end of town. So I was so thankful. For a Catholic priest though, it's a different kind of call, isn't it? Same excitement of serving the Lord, but now you can't get married. Kind of ups the bar a little bit, doesn't it? Jesus would up the bar even more for some of these guys and say, hey, you know, I don't really have any place to stay. I don't have a house where you can come and crash. And so we're just going to make it on the land. Would that change your willingness to follow Jesus if you were camping a lot, just kind of throwing your knapsack and going from town to town and preaching to everybody who would listen to you? Another guy said, hey, to another, Jesus actually said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father and Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Seems kind of harsh, right? It was especially harsh during this time. One of the big deals for the Jews was, was caring for somebody who had just passed. It, in fact, it, it was more important to care for the, for the dead, right, than it was to, if you were a priest, to go do sacrifices in your normal duties, to, to do any of the religious rites. I mean, this was the most important thing. Go take care of the dead. Make sure that they're taken care of and all that different kind of stuff. Jesus says, follow me. And the guy said something rightfully. He said, my dad is about to pass. I don't know when, but he's about to pass. Let me come right after that. And I'd love to follow you. And Jesus puts a perspective in here that's hard. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Your dad's going to pass. If he believes me, he's going to be in heaven. If he doesn't, he's going to be somewhere else. right? But, but the reality is, I need you right now. There's an urgency to go preach the gospel. I need you to follow me as if it's the most important thing. I think that's a hard thing. It's that loving Jesus part that's so hard for us as disciples to say that he's the most important. We sing songs about it. You are my all in all or whatever. I guess that's an old song now. But, but the reality is that you're the most important thing in my life. But is he more important than family? Is he more important than possessions? Is he more important than status? It's hard when it comes to the rub, when you actually have to choose between the one or the other, and Jesus is asking these guys to choose. I need to be most important. There's work to be done. Your dad will be okay, okay? Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. <laughs> My wife would kill me if I just didn't show up, right? It makes total sense. I get this. I'm just going to go say bye. My wife needs it. My kids, they need to know I why I just didn't show up for dinner, right? I, I just need to go let them know. And it, it would be better if I told them in person rather than sending Frank here because, you know, Frank's an idiot. I don't know what exactly he's going to say and my wife's already going to kill me, so whatever. But Jesus responds in this way. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I need to be the most important thing. And he knows he's being extreme here. He knows he's being, but he's doing it for a point. I need to be the most important thing. Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's family's fleeing. What does Lot's wife do? 
She longed for something in the past, and she's turned into stone. The girl, I think, is the, the old story of the Columbine shooting, right? And there was that girl, and the guy had a gun to her head and asked, just tell me, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I won't shoot you if you just say you don't believe that. She says, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And that was the last word she ever said. She loved him more than her life. She loved him most. That's why we still remember the story. This following Jesus thing is hard, okay? We do it because of what he's given to us. We do it because of the way he loves us. We do it because he saved our life. He saved our eternity. He gives us strength in this world. He gives us hope. He gives us everything. There's nothing that he won't do for us. And because of that, we trust him with our lives. Because of that, we follow him because of his, our love for him. Because we know that if we follow, he's going to take care of everything. It's just hard. And Jesus is trying to outline that for his disciples. Why? Why is he being so stark at this point? Because he's heading to Jerusalem, to his death, to his crucifixion, for his final end, where he's going to sacrifice himself for the world. And these are the 12 guys that are supposed to carry that truth to the ends of the earth. Part of the discussion with Moses and Elijah had to be, I don't think they're ready. I mean, I'm, I don't even think they're close to being ready. I, I don't, yeah, I need another three years. I mean, I'm just saying, I don't mind going through this. Stuff. I just, God, you need this thing to work, right? I, I. So he's highlighting for them what it means to follow. It means that he's the most important thing. And I'll leave you that tonight. God loves you so much. He died for you so that you might experience life and forgiveness in heaven. He's present with you as you walk through life so you can deal with any adversity or problem or harm. He's promised that he works all things for your good. He says, I've got your eternity taken care of. Follow me and I'll get you there. Follow me and I will help you bring other people to know the amazingness of what I've promised them. Follow me and there'll be more people in heaven Follow me, he says. And all God's people said, amen. Let me pray. God, we love you so much. and We thank you for tonight. We thank you just for the perspective of things. We, we sometimes forget, you know, that there's that follow me part. But Lord, I just want us to focus tonight on why we follow. We follow because you're amazing. We follow because you love us first, because you've died for us, because you care for us, because you cherish us as your kids. And the thing is, is you got more kids that you want in heaven. Strengthen us. Give us a renewed perspective. Give us a hope, a perspective that we need. Remind us that you're there. Remind us that you've got us. And give us the strength to follow you. Father, we pray that tonight in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.